Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. to the pod blacklisted by God, to the talk that sends the demons running amok, that is Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as usual, I would, would say as always, last week we had a special guest, as usual, is Travis Stevens, my good friend and partner in heresy. Travis, how are you doing this evening? Very, very excited to talk about Gregory the Great. I mean, in his name, you already know, that it's going to be great. Yeah. It's like, it's like if you know someone who's got like a really crazy, awesome name and they like to party and you're like, this guy just, the name just tells you it is the party. And I think that's what Gregory. I mean, okay. So given the choice, Klaus, would you prefer to invite to a dinner party, Gregory the great or Philip the fair? I'm just putting it out there. (laughs) It depends what kind of party. I mean, I think if, uh, if you need like, a real party animal, someone to really crank it up to 11, then maybe Gregory the Great would be the guy. He would be the G to invite. I don't know. In- but- interesting choice. I'm I'm surprised. I mean, Philip was known for his hotness. Um, so that is, you know, there's that. And he was a French king. You know, Gregory was a monk, uh, was a monk yeah, who, like, yeah, didn't yeah, even want to be a yeah. powerful monk um, or a pope. So if you're looking for a party animal, I don't know. On the other hand, he was like... Maybe Philip. Philip maybe. Yeah. But you've read a lot of Gregory at this point. So I feel like you'd have more questions for him. So it's really a draw for me. I don't, I don't want to sway your opinion <laughs> one way or the other. Well, I don't know if Philip... I, I don't even know when Philip lived. But this is a good way to say that... Uh, this is the last episode of season two on Gregory the Great. He's sort of a transition figure between late antiquity and the Middle Ages. And season three is going to be all about the Middle Ages. And so we're really excited about that because Travis is our resident expert on the Middle Ages. And he, I'm like going to talk him up into sort of effusing about how great this next season is going to be because he's going to bring the fire. He's going to bring that fire that burned Jonah Ark alive. He's going to bring that kind of fire. <laughs> Really, really happy fire that that burns people who turn out to be saints. Sorry. Um, Yeah. No, we're going to have a lot of fun in the next season. One of the highlights of next season will be the ability to talk about women who wrote things down about the devil. So very much looking forward to that. Uh, So stay tuned. Stick with us. We're having an an amazing time on this adventure of the podcast. And uh, yeah, season three, it's going to be better than ever. It's going to stop being like a frat boy party. Yeah, it's, it, it, that's excellent. <laughs> awesome. Russ. Yeah, so as, like I just mentioned, we're closing out this season. Gregory the Great, sort of, and I think Augustine's like this too. They are both like have one foot in late antiquity and one foot in the medieval period. Gregory lives a little bit later than Augustine, 6th century. But Augustine is so influential on the Middle Ages, so he sort of spans both those periodizations. And uh, Gregory, 
I don't know if he really quite has, I, we'll talk about this, like how much his influence is his own and how much it's Augustine's, but he's also, by living in the sixth century, we're sort of at a post-Roman empire glory days moment. We're beginning to see these, these invading tribes from the East, the Goths and the Lombards and whatever, all, all the people who come to populate Europe making their mark on power politics and in church politics. And so he's sort of like the gate that hinges between both these periods, I think, with Gregory. So I think that's kind of interesting and cool thing about him. Okay, in my Um, head, they're sweeping down from the north. Tell me more about sweeping down from the east. Very excited to learn this. Well, you know, all, all directions. They're coming from all directions, right? They are. Right? That yeah, is they're just, true. They're coming for everyone. Okay, good call. Right. But the, the Huns, the Huns came from the east. Yes. And they, they, they okay, brought, good. They brought the fire. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Fine. Thank you. Um, so wondering if we should get the ball rolling with a little bit of background on G squared, Gregory the Great, GG, <laughs> the original, the ultimate G. Well, yeah. We can, we can mix it up as we need. Yeah. Um, we need to figure out what's so great about this guy why are we calling him gregory the great so let's start here he was born in the 540s everyone's favorite decade of the sixth century to an aristocratic roman family with popes in his lineage hey that is a lot to live up to so must have been tough anyway this isn't the glory years of rome um those years have faded in fact rome has been sacked the empire is in shards very pokey shards, don't get poked. And it's being squabbled over by different groups like the Goths and the Lombards, the aforementioned uh, Huns as well. And um, not to mention the new Rome itself, the Byzantine Empire centered in Constantinople. Istanbul, Constantinople. Uh, We will not sing that song Mm. or sample it right now. Um, Gregory (laughs) lives through the war between the Byzantines and the Goths for control of Italy. And one crucial result of all this fighting was that the city of Rome turned into a bit of a ghost town and it's his hometown. So sad times. So that contributes perhaps to Gregory the Great's gritty realism as a leader and his certainly his apocalyptic outlook as a theologian. I think that's right. And as you mentioned, Gregory's part of this very privileged line, and he becomes prefect of the city in 573. And that meant handling public administration, the finances, 
managing the economics and the defenses of the city such as they were. He did this for a single traumatic year. Man, rough year. The Lombards, a new barbarian threat, cut off communications between Ravenna, the new political power center of Italy, and Constantinople. So the serving pope died during this very bad, lousy, no good year. And to cap it off, the Byzantine general Narcissus also perished. And he was like the presiding sheriff in town for the Byzantine Empire, if you will. I wonder what it's like to live through a very bad, lousy, no good year, Klaus. I don't, yeah, I don't know or, if or any two. of our listeners yeah. would know what that's like. But anyway, yeah. even though we keep speaking about the quote-unquote barbarians being the major threat, it was no party for the actual Romans being ruled by the quote-unquote new Rome. The Byzantines control the old Rome by a special governor called, I know you love this, the Exarch, um, which just sounds amazing and is probably the title of our new band that we're starting Klaus. It's like very sci-fi. I think it's like very (sighs) Dune. It's very, very, it's very Dune. Yes. So the situation of the old Rome under the Byzantine rule is not much better than before. Rome has little prestige, less power, and is distant from the Imperial court. It almost feels like a backwater the same way Jerusalem did when Jesus was alive, kind of has been center of an empire or civilization. To symbolize Byzantine dominance, after taking Rome back from the Goths, Emperor Justinian and Empress Theodora had a famous mosaic of themselves installed directly behind the altar in the Roman Basilica of San Vitale. I imagine that raised a few eyebrows, but it is really interesting art, so, like, yeah, for sure. Right, if you, like, see an image of of Theodora or Justinian, like, it's this image, It is that image, yes. It's this image, but still, like, that's, that's, that's a little bit intrusive. A little bit. <laughs> like, sure, but like if I had that kind of money, like I would probably have a mosaic made of me in a big fancy building too. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I guess I guess that's fair. So anyway, like like I said, it was a bad year. Gregory didn't last long as a prefect, but don't worry, he will be back in the seat of power soon enough. He becomes a monk, but it wasn't just a form of escapism. He was really committed to being ascetic. And according to his medieval biographers, this ruined his health. Like the stomach lining was not in good shape from all of his fasting. Gregory donated his whole family patrimony, which I guess was of a lot and a lot and a lot, and transformed his Roman estate into a monastery, along with six others that he'd endowed. The Roman monastery was St. Andrew's, and he entered it then after donating it as a novice, so that's, a, that's kind of intense, like sort of a weird power dynamic theory. Like you donated everything to make this. And you're like, well, now I'm just a simple, a humble novice. And you're like, oh, this is a little complicated. Um, so, yeah. So in 579, Gregory became the papal representative in Constantinople, which goes to show us that he was not a simple little novice, right? <laughs> it's like that just doesn't happen. It's like, oh, you lowly monk. Now we're going to snatch you up and make you like the papal ambassador to the uh, to the court in, in Constantinople. So he had these like really major political and diplomatic duties, but found time, <clears throat> found time to do his studies and to supervise a group of Latin speaking ascetics who had come with him from St. Andrews. So he had his, his, his own like little retinue of, uh, of Latinate monks there. This is the context for the start 
of his Job commentary, the Moralia in Job, which we'll discuss in painstaking and excruciating detail. And I wish that was just like a conventional bullshit, but no, that's, that's really what we're going to do. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a bit. But it's funny, um, these really detailed commentaries arose at first as a series of sermons. So I, I don't know. I think it's that's interesting. Oh, for sure. Like if we ever get the chance to talk about, you know, Bernard sermons on the Song of Songs that essentially turn into this extended set of commentaries, like quite literary commentaries, I can see sort of a, a parallel process moving from a kind of spoken didactic, you know, format into this much more systematic well systematic is not the right word into this much more <laughs> systematic uh, is not the word i go for <laughs> systematic is not the word elaborate uh extended written form yeah so in 590 gregory was overwhelmingly elected pope and let's be clear being pope in the sixth century was definitely not the same thing as it came to mean later you were the bishop of rome and rome definitely had prestige but Let's not get too carried away. There were no, like, fancy red shoes involved, for example. Yeah. The only person who was upset about the election of Gregory was Gregory himself, according to one biographer. So he was at least reportedly not excited about becoming pope. One striking fact, Gregory was the first monk pope, and he brought ascetics with him into the papal administration, sort of like he brought a group of monks with him when he went over to Constantinople to do his diplomatic duties there. He also brings them with him into, you know, the Vatican, what we mm -hmm. would call the Vatican. And mm -hmm. we might ask, why is that important? What difference did it make that he was a monk pope? What sensibilities did he bring with him, et cetera? How did that transform his papacy or his thinking or his theology? Yeah, I think we'll see quite, it made quite a big, a big difference. But yes, yeah, scholars have debated his influence some seeing his theology as simply derivative of Augustine's. And I definitely, reading through it again, I did see Augustine's presence there. But he seems to have been obviously influential in promoting the cult of saints and hagiography. And these would take on a huge role in the medieval Latin church. So that, that's something I don't really see as much in Augustine, this promotion of a cult of saints and sort of like Catholic Christian culture at a more vernacular level, I think he's more interested in, which is, I think, important. And I think that will definitely feature next season significantly. But it seems like if there's anything unique about his role in the history of theology, it's his interest in spiritual and pastoral leadership. So he brings asceticism into the broader church administration, and it informs the concept of church leadership that would develop in Rome. So we talked about, like, the Desert Fathers a few episodes back. And you may recall now, like in monasticism, the master disciple role is really central to educating and training new monks and nuns. This intimate relationship between a superior and an inferior, whereby one learns obviously not only the ideas and the main concepts, but also just like the, the style, the style of life that one pursues and basic mannerisms and all these things. And I think seeing that enter into the formation of the elite bureaucracy in Rome does sort of bespeak some major changes, I would say. Um, so yeah, like there's this new level of discipline and attention to ethical formation, which entered the nascent church bureaucracy. Yeah. So remember in this period, especially monks represented a worldview based on this life of 
prayer, devotion, and communal living. So to bring a monastic way of being into the church means to start blurring the lines between monk and priest, habit and collar, if you will. So Gregory the Great conceptualizes the church as divided into three groups. There are the pious married people, spiritual directors or pastors, and ascetics. And as he matured and worked as Pope, that middle one, the spiritual director slash pastor, gains prestige that it didn't have before, uh, mediating between the other two worlds or estates, if you will, the married people and the ascetics. This reflects Gregory the Great's own personal impulse to asceticism and obscurity, right? Running away from worldly responsibilities or taking them on grudgingly as he does as a diplomat and also as Pope, but also a kind of Ciceronian compulsion to public service where he submits to taking on these duties on behalf of the flock. And for me, what's interesting, we've talked about this a few times in the last uh, half of the, the second season. I see this synthesis by Gregory as almost an attempted correction to the instrumentalist sacramental account of the priesthood that we talked about before, where the priest is this sort of this tool of a divine grace. I think with Gregory, by emphasizing the master-disciple role, puts this premium on ethical growth and spiritual progress, which really matters for the careers and the sort of ethical lives of spiritual directors. And so you have to be more than just like this sacramental conduit for divine power. You have to be like a good person in a, in a significant way. Right. And we're outside of the context of the Pelagian controversy here in the sense that we're not saying that you have to be a perfect priest in order for the sacraments to be efficacious. Instead, we're sort of saying, okay, sure, that, that question maybe is decided by Augustine in those separate debates, but instead we're defining the role of what it means to be a pastor. You know, he's, Gregory is famous not just for the Moralia and Joe, but also for the Regula Pastoralis, where he talks about what it means to exhibit this kind of leadership in this really different way. Um, and, you know, from my own perspective as someone who works with my own bishop, with people who want to become ordained in the Episcopal Church, um, this is a different model of priesthood. Um, what I see today is this desire for spiritual practices that ultimately derive from the monastic life, um, regular prayer, uh, a hunger for intentional community. All these things are changing what the priesthood is even now in our tradition. There's this hunger for reaching across to the world of monastics, to the world of people who live under a rule of life and bringing some of those practices into the laity through a clergy who are informed about these practices in some way. So it's not that we have a bunch of monks who are, we don't have a lot of monk priests or monk bishops necessarily, though we've had some. I remember when I lived in, in Boston, actually, we had a, a monk bishop at the time, Bishop Tom. But there's this kind of urge to bring together that sensibility that I think Gregory was innovating in the regular pastoralis that echoes even today in what I see in my job in this in this <laughs> heretical denomination of the Episcopal Church. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And to see that this sort of attention to a, a rule of life that is outside of the secular world and we and like sort of a term of art, but like the idea of like secular priests or, or you know the secular clergy 
as people who are ministering to a population that's involved in the way of the world versus uh, people in religious orders who are living in almost a different world. And, and to see where, I think with like with Gregory, when, you're li- when he's living in a time in which there's such crisis and like the secular world is actually not doing a very good job at managing itself, to, it sort of makes sense to bring in this kind of uh, someone who's a, a virtuoso at the religious life to sort of try to like manage, manage it according to, according to the, the practices and habits and mores of the religious world. And that, that, sort of, that sort of resonates with me as something that maybe joins together Gregory's time in this time. Um, yeah. So uh, we mentioned before that, that Job is a major figure for Gregory. And he saw Job as someone whose life story is showcasing the tug of war between the active life and the contemplative life. And this is always, especially I think we'll see this in medieval Christianity, especially in the Latinate world, a major dynamic of, of how to understand religious practice as being centered on contemplation versus being centered on, on charity or caritas, you know, like works of love. Uh, and he reads this, and this, this goes back to this tension you, you pointed out between the Ciceronian impulse towards public life and the impulse towards contemplation and retirement from the world. And he reads this all into Job. He sees this all happening in the story of Job. And this really comes out in the Moralia, which is like this, it's massive work. We, 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 there's no prayer of us doing justice to it. Multiple volumes, thousands of pages, but the devil's all over this damn thing. He's all over it. So yeah, lucky for us. So Travis, could you do me a favor? I, like I really, I just love like asking you to do this kind of this kind of hard work on the on the spot. What happens in the Book of Job again? We talked about it a long time ago, but like, what's going on in the Book of Job? Okay, so once upon a time, God was hanging in heaven and there was this heavenly court what the hell is a heavenly court don't ask dumb questions yeah (laughs) don't ask dumb questions klaus don't ask dumb questions so there were other beings in the heavenly court there were entities of some sort they were probably other gods but don't tell anyone because monotheism forever and one of the members of this heavenly court was this tempter adversary figure. Hashatan, right? <laughs> yeah, Hashatan, if you will, uh, the Satan. And Satan is hanging out there. And so God says, hey, Satan, have you checked out, because you're, you're walking around, you're walking around on the earth, noticing things. Have you noticed my servant Job over here? He is such a badass. Look how good he is. Isn't that just great? And weirdly, Satan seems not into it and points out like, oh, I don't know. I mean, like his life is going great. You're helping him out a lot. You know, you you have like created this fence around him um, so that nothing bad can reach him. And so he's living the good life. Like, why am I supposed to be impressed by this? Like, Mm -hmm. this seems like not very impressive to me at all. And so through their conversation, it, it is agreed that the that Satan should be able to um, have the power to fuck things up a little bit. Have a have to, a go. Have a go at him. Yeah. Have a, to have a go, as it were. <laughs> yes. Um, at Job and sort of see what happens. Will Job remain faithful to God? Or and I think it's like a verbal act of of renouncing God in some way, not so much about belief in God as, you know, this is not, that's not what we're talking about. It's not about whether or not God exists. It's like, 
will you continue to acknowledge that God is God um, and powerful and good and God's goodness? I think those are the the terms of the debate that are that's meant to be opened by this kind of uh, sequence of actions, this this plot sequence. So um, there's a sequence of bad things that happen to Job, um, and first like everything that's sort of external to his body happens so like his he's a really wealthy guy and he's got camels which sounds really great in case anyone wants to give me a camel just tweet us and let us know i'm interested in owning a camel but he had camels he had land he had people did he have slaves did he have slaves i think i I forget if he has slaves he definitely has like a large household. He's a, f- a large household, yeah. certainly. And so um, all of those, like bad things start happening. Like fire from heaven comes down and harms these. And then the, the, the house where his children are staying with their spouses, it collapses on them and they all, all the young people die. So things are not going great for Job. And, but he doesn't, fall prey to temptation and then the devil's like well okay yeah 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 yeah. but what if i'm allowed to screw with his actual body like make him sick or wounded or like can i just mess with his body because you know he is his body he's perfectly healthy over there he's doing fine he's not suffering through any physical pain and then he's allowed to do that god's like okay sure but just don't kill him so Job has great luck. This is all going great for him. And then at the end, there are like long speeches between God and short speech interspersed by very short, like comments by Job being like, Oh no, it's you're still great. And you're God. Um, But God's like, who are you to question me? I created the monster of the sea. Um, Yes. I just rhymed. You're welcome. And Travis will be speaking in rhymes for the rest of the episode. Like he will just, everything will rhyme from here on out. (laughs) Heroic couplets will just (laughs) issue forth. (laughs) Hate to disappoint you, but uh, that is not happening. Okay. So that's your, um, that's your summary of the book of Job. I did, I'm sure a perfect job and I didn't miss any details. And I only focused on what was perfect. It was perfect. Like the evil genius with the cat on the lap. That's perfect. Yeah. I, I I lived in like Deep Bros, Queens for a year or so of my life, and I used to walk to work through this part of Kew Gardens, Forest Hills, and there was like a little park, and they had a statue of Job in the park, and this was like a like a, a pretty you know a, a high concentration of of Jewish people lived in this this neighborhood, and there was this statue of Job, and it was like. A, definitely like a sort of post Holocaust stop, like sort of, it was like sort of like connecting Job to the Holocaust basically in, in sort of this commemorative way. And it, it made an impression on me. I don't know, like just like the sort of like the misery that the sculptor managed to uh, transfer into the features of this humanoid form were uh, left an impression. So yeah, if you're ever in wow. the borders of forest Hills and Kew gardens in Queens, not far from forest park, um, yeah, there's a good representation of Job there. So yeah, um, so yeah, Job is important. I'm going to start talking about other things now. So like the way Gregory goes at this text reflects some of the influence of Origin of Alexandria. Um, 
Shout out to Origin. Shout out to Origin. Big shout out to Origin. Yeah, yeah. Not problematic at all. Uh, Who read scripture at its different levels of meaning, including the historical or literal meaning, its allegorical meaning, which in this case relates the text to different aspects of Jesus's career from the New Testament, and the moral level, which relates back to Gregory's interest in the human being's ethical development. Gregory writes that it can be difficult to know which reading lens to use to examine the text. And so he says that scripture is at once shallow enough for a lamb to wade in and deep enough to float an elephant. His, his epistles and his prefaces are, are awesome, I will say, for, for Job. The word of God is a winding river, shifting course across the sort of desolate landscape of human existence. And so we need to unpack it in the way it shifts. We need to like pay attention to the way this river is like sort of winding across the topography of human existence. I found that part really interesting because he seems at once to want to capture the difficult interpretive choices that need to be made between shift as you shift between levels. But on the other hand, there's some, he uses a geographical metaphor to argue that some of it is predetermined. So a river stays in a riverbed until it reaches a valley and then it flows into that lower area before sort of winding back to what I guess he assumes is a pre-existing riverbed. Anyway, it's a little bit weird, but that idea that there is, there are some senses where it's right or governed by some sense of rules and other times where it's clear that he is not clear. Um, what's always the way to go mm-hmm. as you, as you interpret. And I think that's super interesting, especially since he's relying somewhat on origin who I would have to go back. But what I remember from origin is a pretty clear, like if the historical meaning doesn't make sense, that's when you move up levels, right? There was at least some kind of grounding, yeah. which seems to echo this idea of like the river, this metaphor that we see well, in Gregory the Great of the it, river. It's weird with Gregory because he begins, like we'll talk about the heavenly court and the first few chapters of Job. He begins and he'll just, he'll just go through each one. It'll just like lay it all out. It's like, this is the literal meaning. This is the allegorical meaning. This is the moral meaning. And then I skipped ahead to the end to talk about the sea monsters and such, because like I have the brain of a four-year-old. And well, also seven heads, ten horns. You yeah, were right. you Monst- are responsible monsters. to your audience to monsters. talk about monsters. monsters. Exactly. Yeah, monsters. And by the end, you know, like four thousand page volumes in, <laughs> Gregory's like he's done with 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 the sedimented approach. It's just like it's just all kind of mixed together. Um, and so yeah, that's I think like you were saying that the the notes for the episode like it's very organized at the beginning and then by the end it's like a little bit like more chaotic <laughs> well like that reflects the material a little bit too <laughs> i will say um so yeah for sure so why don't we turn now to the letter he writs to bishop leander bishop um, leander kind of int- what a prince prince of the church right yeah. what a prince prince of the church he writes a kind of cover letter for this <laughs> multi-volume work. <laughs> Wish you luck, Bishop. <laughs> anyway, uh, he explains why Job is deserving of this incredibly minute treatment. Job is not simply a character in a story, but a literary authority, the spiritually inspired author of his own story. The suffering he experiences in the story teaches practical lessons. Every good man who has not been tested harshly is insipid or unserious for Gregory. So there's a necessity in moral development, therefore, to a kind of sequence of horrible tests or trials. 
Gregory the Great is a big believer in redemptive suffering as well. Job's suffering make him famous, and that fame spreads his legacy and his pedagogical purpose. We have layers of ethical development going on here through the creation of the literary account, which is scripture. Gregory writes, for his virtue had its exercise, indeed, even in peaceful times. But it was by strokes that the report of his virtue was stirred up to fragrance. And he who in repose kept within himself all that he was, when disturbed, did scatter abroad the odor of his fortitude. Um, by the way, odor of his fortitude <laughs> is the title of my memoirs. For all to know. For as unguents, unless they be stirred, are never smelt far off, and as aromatic scents spread not their fragrance, except they be burned, so the saints in their tribulations make known all the sweetness that they have of their virtues. And this feels at once so Augustinian in its sort of rhetoric, but also so medieval, the like appeal to the senses, the like mm. synesthesia that's going on here as mm -hmm. well. Oh man, it's so good. I love this part so much. Thank you, everyone. Right. And like, that is all. Gregory's like, you say torture, and I say soothing aroma. <laughs> smells so good, right? Like, when you hurt, it smells amazing. Yeah. So, Hurts yeah. so good, smells so good. So, by yeah. linking this Masochism. redemptive suffering, yeah, all the way, Job rapidly starts to transcend his humble origins in the story. He becomes both a type or symbol for Jesus Christ in the passion, but also for the church caught up in its apocalyptic tribulations. Somehow the redemptive suffering is never quite redemptive enough. Otherwise we wouldn't get it repeated over and over again. Like Job's redemptive suffering, Jesus' redemptive suffering, the church's, yeah. Anyway, it keeps smelling so good. It's like a mall in the nineties, like pumping out fragrances to get you to buy the pretzels at orange Julius or something like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that is incredible. All right. Um, also, I just want to underline this idea of his appeal to the apocalyptic as important yeah. for understanding why, like, why is this coming up? Because he thinks the world is ending right now. Like, you know, many people we will encounter in our, you know, medieval have encountered. Three. We'll so continue stay to uncover. <laughs> it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. So yeah, and they're all they're all right. It turns out. <laughs> it turns out everyone was right. Okay. <laughs> Stand in the way of the Islamic 
Okay, so at first, Gregory the Great starts by reading the story and then retelling it two more times with the allegorical, which is, as a reminder, the Christocentric version, and the moral interpretations in sequence. He will refer to allegory. What are you doing, Watson? Okay, you got the sneezes? Thank you. Thanks. Okay. He will refer to allegory as pertaining to the head, which is, of course, JC, Jesus Christ, everyone's favorite, and the moral as pertaining to the body, which is the life of the church, humans who follow the gospel, etc. So we're like definitely digging on Paul at this point, following that, you know, the head of the church is Christ, etc. And the body is the, is the church, etc. Um, this layering allows him a ton of speculative detail to work with, and we see him milking these stories for all their work. Right, Klaus? Yeah, definitely. And you might think that the literal historical part would be pretty tame, but it's also it also has these wild elements. So like at like the beginning, in the heavenly court, Gregory notices how the angels and Satan appear before God, and he makes a point in insisting that while the angels, the good angels, can see God insofar as they share in God's will and intuit it directly, Satan can't see him at all. So like I'm like there imagining Satan standing in this empty throne room talking at an empty vacant chair it's like what are you doing with your life man you're talking to a chair right like let's come on <laughs> like as if this is the message weren't communicated there or not. okay but isn't that sort of like a kind of weird version of evil having no being right that augustinian notion it's sort of like I think so. But we're moving into like appearances and sight and being able to see and not see. It feels like for Satan, it's God who has no, mm, not being, but no corporality. It's sort of interesting. Yeah. I think, yeah, so it's a reversal there. I think that's that's an interesting point. But they are able to speak to one another in the biblical text. And Gregory posits that their dialogue is inward. He's like, there's no air pressing through the windpipe or anything like that. <laughs> and to me, it's almost like how Sauron talks to Frodo whenever he puts on the ring. It's like, it's not pleasant. Right? It's like this voice is just like coming into your brain and you're like, oh my God, like make it stop. That's how I imagine it is for the devil when God's talking to him. So Gregory explains that the, that God speaks to the devil in four ways. Count them. One, rebuking him two, showing him the justice of the saints three allowing him to test the saints and then four, stopping satan when it goes too bad by the way (laughs) if you're wondering if like numbered lists in biblical interpretation is going to go away anytime soon you are incorrect it's going to be huge in the middle ages so we get another thousand years of this so just get get ready for that you're welcome everyone Right. And of course, this matches up with the three ways that the devil speaks. One, disparaging the saints. Two, urging them to be tested. And three, giving a report of his nefarious... I mean, it just feels more right if you can number them, right? And this whole testing scenario in Job exists for Gregory as a way for God to troll the devil by showing him what the saints are capable of. I love the kind of mocking you know, undercurrent that's going on here, like nanny, nanny, boo, boo, sort of a situation, which to be honest, doesn't feel that far away from the childishness. That's so easy to at least read into the biblical narrative. I think anyway, take one line when God asks Satan what he's up to or where he's been. And Satan answers, 
going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down it. Um, which also for me recalls Genesis where God's walking around in the garden, just like, <laughs> anyway, in the literal reading, Gregory sees this as meaning that the devil has to labor intensely and fruitlessly, reminiscent of Adam and Eve's punishment in Genesis three, this like before it was apparently super easy to do things like garden, you know, eat the fruit bear, was just dropping their children, yeah. you know, all those things were fine until the um, consequences of sin are declared in Genesis 3. But when turning to the allegorical interpretation, Gregory sees this as meaning that Satan is corrupting all humans, leaving his footprints in their hearts. He also makes a point to mention that this subjugation of humanity is legally binding. Someone bring in a lawyer. And finally, in the moral sense, these words of Satan's mean that he circulates readily and persistently in the hearts of sinners, tarrying wherever he can. Again, this like idea of strolling, right? You see tarrying in the hearts of sinners, loving it, loving it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all three of these layers relate, but they definitely have different resonances. The first really foregrounds the futility of the devil's work. Like he's laboring like Adam and Eve after the fall. It's not very fun. Sweat of your brow, etc. Labor really hurts. The second shows his successes. He's 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 getting it done. The third shows him as something each and every sinner has to deal with psychologically in all of our hearts. Like so it's sort of these different these different levels of satanic triumph, satanic despair, satanic uh, ubiquity. <laughs> it's great. And for me what strikes me about these three interpretations is their relative unity. And by relative unity, I'm anticipating season three, where we're going to jump in with writers like Hildegard, for example, where we will depart so radically, especially through allegory, um, through his second level, we will depart so radically from the literal level of the text as to be almost unrecognizable from time to time. And so it's kind of fun to see the way that he, we're still talking about Satan's actions and all these Satan isn't a stand in for drunk people or for Satan isn't uh, a stand in for a kind of political reading. None of that's going on here. We really have um, three different messages all about how Satan operates. And that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it's like, it almost feels like, they're three different worlds sometimes like the temporality feels different. Like it feels like in the one world, Satan's running things. It feels like in the other world, Satan is falling flat on his face. And then in the other world, Satan feels like the common cold. It's like, (laughs) but they're all coexisting at the same time, like and harmonizing. And I think like, that's all like interesting, but something you mentioned in the allegorical interpretation is how Satan has a legal hold over humanity pre passion of Christ. And I don't mean the Mel Gibson movie. It happened before that. <laughs> this is something that comes up a lot in this commentary, the legality of satanic domination. And it's apparent in this scene in particular, because Satan needs God's permission before intensifying each of the tribulations, each of the, these horrible tests that Job has to go through. In one allegorical interpretation of the heavenly court, God's right hand is used to stand for the loyal angels who didn't fall, as Augustine would tell us, like in the first instance of their creation. 
and his left hand stands for those who did, the fallen angels, and Satan in particular. And Gregory explains what this means for divine providence. Quote, But we must know that the will of Satan is always evil, uh, surprise, but his power is never unjust. His power is never unjust. For his will he derives from himself, but his power he derives from God. For what he himself unrighteously desires to do, God does not allow to be done, except with justice. That's quite the proviso. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I see how the theme of spiritual leadership is coming across here. God's like a spiritual guide who knows when to assign penance and when to dispense comfort. And God knows, therefore, when to use his left hand and when to use his right hand. And that seems like this sort of connects with this sort of idea that spiritual leadership is is Gregory's major sort of theological innovation. Yeah, absolutely. You have a kind of medical doctor of the soul here going on between what tools are available within spiritual direction and leadership that will appropriately point someone, a penitent, toward back toward God. The other thing I see is how this leadership motif corresponds with Gregory's monism. This isn't a dualistic struggle, but a carefully orchestrated sequence with one auteur making the moves. Gregory establishes that Satan needs God's permission to lay his hand on Job. He links this back to Legion, everyone's favorite demon, asking Jesus Christ's permission to go into the herd of pigs in Mark 5. And if you haven't read that recently, highly recommend. Really just such an amazing story. Um, Especially when the demons start like uh, negotiating with Jesus about like, well, I like, I like when the possessed guys like, Oh, can I follow you? And Jesus like, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Amazing. If he can't enter swine, then he sure as hell can't mess around with this guy's life. This is what historian Philip Allman calls the demonic paradox. The devil's will is always evil, but his power is ontologically grounded in God and thus can be used for God, right? It's this set of permissions that mm-hmm. that doesn't transform the will of Satan in any way, but harnesses it for the purposes of the divine, which always sort of ally with the concept of divine justice, right? Yeah, no, totally. And this reminds me, like this old, this whole idea of the demonic paradigm, demonic paradise yeah demonic paradox later in gregory's text later in job we get the leviathan and we get one of gregory's lengthy allegorical analyses of the the leviathan this giant sea monster and in the biblical text god speaks of there being a covenant between god's self and leviathan it's kind of a one-sided deal but it's it's there in the original text gregory didn't make this up i'll quote right now this is from the NRSV. Will it make a co- will it that is the Leviathan make a covenant with you? Or is the Leviathan going to make a covenant with you? Is the Leviathan coming to make a deal with you to be your servant servant forever? So and uh, end quote. And right, Gregory, Gregory's like I, this in, in in a way I find to be pretty unique that Gregory is using this this piece of scripture to say that the God and the devil have a covenant. They have a legal arrangement. This is being done in an orderly and legal way. And I I, I don't know. It's very striking to me that, and we see it in what what Hashatan or Satan can do in the heavenly court. And we see it with Leviathan, who Gregory is equating with Satan, that there has to be a legal procedural framework for this whole thing to work. 
So in effect, the devil gets a covenant before Abraham or the children of Israel get a covenant with God, which feels very strange on the, on the one hand. But on the other, we've seen prequels to established bi biblical narratives before. Think of Augustine's fall of the angels that prefigures the Edenic fall of Adam and Eve, right? But I think what is still striking for me has to do with God cutting a covenant, not with a basically good or even morally neutral character or characters, but instead with someone God knows to be inherently evil who has already betrayed God's trust. That right, just seems right. the worst super enemy. Yeah. strange. Like the enemy. Yeah. Like let's sit down and let's, let's draw up the terms of how this is going to go anyway. Yeah. For, for, uh, for iron pact. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So God wants to test God's people. The devil wants to destroy them. And through tribulation and testing, both interests are pursued. Everybody goes home happy, right? I've read about there being a diabolical legal hold over humanity before Christ, but not quite this idea that there's a contract for the devil as God's agent in a way that is mutually beneficial, right? That the devil is kind of getting something out of entering into this arrangement. That seems really interesting and unique. Yeah, and like we with Irenaeus and Gregory of Nyssa, like there is a sense that there's a legal hold. Right. The devil has a legal mm -hmm. hold over humanity. But it's never put that the devil has a like has this contract with God, right? And it's I guess I guess that's implied. But Gregory's like, oh yeah, they they went to the lawyer's office and you know put, both put their John Hancock's on that motherfucker. Like yeah, like I mean it's 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 like that, right? You know? Having legal rights versus sitting down and creating like a contract. Those feel those feel like different things to me too. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about one more part of this initial tete-a-tete -tete between God and Satan. After destroying Job's life, the devil shows up and God's like, see, you didn't get him to like curse me or sin in any way. He won't even curse you, you fucking idiot. You're so insignificant. He doesn't even know that you exist. And what God actually says is, uh, you have moved me against him without cause. And you got nothing to show for it. And now your pride is hurting bad. And Satan's like, let me take off the kid gloves, you big goof. Let me park a couple in its upper level, if you know what I mean. And God's like, fine, fine. But preserve his life. You don't have a license to kill here, my friend. This is the paradox that Gregory hones in on. Job is in the hands of God and the devil simultaneously. And this is what he says. The holy man is given over to the adversary's hand, but yet in his inmost soul, He's held fast by the hand of his helper. Okay, very cute, Klaus. Very cute. But that part you mentioned where God says, you moved me against him without cause, Gregory sort of tweaks there for a second because he's like, there has to be a cause. There has to be a cause. Gregory's like, <laughs> no, we're not watching the, the Conjuring part 27, The Devil Made Me Do It. The devil didn't make God do it. Humans just talk this way and God adapted it so we could understand. But let's get allegorical for a second here. Get into, quote unquote, the suffering of the head. And oh my God, if you've read the Moralia, you are in for that too. Let me tell you. So when God says, you moved me to do this for no reason, Gregory explains that, duh, Job stands for Jesus Christ in the passion. God is moved against Adam. Okay. <laughs> backing things up a little bit because satan moved adam to transgress <laughs> <that ass> <laughs> exactly <right. laughs> 
but you know like recapitulate <laughs> as in every good recapitulation theory where you have like adam and jesus christ you know jesus christ is is redoing things becoming the head again for adam standing in god is also moved against the second man that is jesus but without cause since the cause is not his guilt but his atonement for the guilt of the first man, that is Adam. So this seems like substitutionary atonement, right? We don't really get a ransom theory yet, even though we're talking about legality, etc. Though there was this mention earlier of Christ defeating Satan, plus God's whole deal with the devil thing we just mentioned. Probably it's the case that the atonement theories blend and blur, especially in this period. I really think that like those atonement theories are like ideal types, like substitutionary atonement versus ransom. Like, like we talked about this Augustine, like they kind of just blend together and, and it's like the whole difficulty of the whole Christian story. It's like this guy died a humiliating death, but he won baby. He won big and making sense of that, like really just creates some, some really uh, steep intellectual hurdles. And sometimes you just jump from the one hurdle to the other and you get a mixture of atonement theory with substitutionary atonement and ransom theory and so on and so forth. Anyway, before we leave this scene, we need to get into one of our favorite topics, the devil and misogyny. After getting hit by the freight train that is satanic tribulation, Job is squatting over a pile of ashes that is his life, scraping the scabs of himself with shards of pottery. And his wife, Cetis, comes along and she's like, curse God and die. Thanks, honey. Right. Gregory relates this back to Adam and Eve in the garden because hello, this is Christianity. And we always end up back in this. Could we not though? Just like for once, like mix it up people. Like Genesis has many other stories in it. Just, I mean, and there's a lot of other stories, better stories too. You could just go to, but no, we always, always have to go here. But Gregory reasons that the devil knows two ways to defeat human beings, break them with tribulations, or turn them away from good causes with persuasion. Obviously, tribulation is in full effect without much impact because Job is stubborn as hell. And so now he works in some body blows in the form of an Eve-like assault through Cetes's, uh reprimand. Gregory refers to wives as the ladders that lead up to husbands for the devil to scale. A great image if there ever was one. Okay, cue Klaus um, to talk about instrumentality it- yet again. Yeah, fuck off. No. Um, <laughs> the instrumentality of the third of, of the, uh, the the married estate here, yes. Uh, but of course, it doesn't work. And this shows that Job is actually superior to Adam. And that's our big clue that he equals Jesus, right? <laughs> A better Adam yeah. always so, equals Jesus every time. Yeah, it's like, oh, he's not falling for that trick. Um, must be must Jesus. Be Jesus. Uh, so. Thereupon follows a discussion of how God can be, quote, and this is Gregory's words, the creator of evil. And this is the quoting Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45. And this, because like Job's like, we got to take the good with the bad. Um, and this goes back to Augustine, right? Evil as such does not exist in itself. Poison is harmful to, for the human beings, but it's flowing through the body of the serpent. Like evil has a kind of relative quality or a, a quality that is that is parasitic upon the good. So when Job tells his wife that we have to accept what is evil with the good, <clears throat> it's in the sense of temporal inconvenience for the sake of a higher end. And again, 
we talked about this idea before, but like the whole like pro- prologue in the heavenly court, there's a theory of Job that that isn't part of the original text, mm-hmm. that the original text is just God fucking with Job. And so <laughs> I love this with Gregory's so detail oriented because he's like, oh, look how Job won't even acknowledge that Satan's doing this to him. And, and for Gregory, it's like, well, like Job knows that God's the sovereign of the universe. It's like, it's not that the text is adapted to have this preamble at the, at the beginning of it. And I, I think it's very interesting that, that Job just like steadfastly refuses to acknowledge the devil's existence through the whole text. Okay, so you brought up Augustine. So let's talk Augustine for a second. Many scholars see Gregory as merely this conduit for Augustine's theological influence between late antiquity and the Middle Ages. Because Gregory is more focused on asceticism, according to historian and Gregory biographer George Demacopoulos, this allows him to imagine human redemption more fully. He sort of balances Augustine and Pelagius or Augustine and Evagrius slash the Desert Fathers to go back to some of the people we've spent more time with. Right. It's not like Gregory's anti-original sin, which was Augustine's big idea, but corruption is not so complete so as to completely prevent humanity from freely working towards salvation. The fall provides concrete limitations that will be occasions for sin. Pleasure is the danger. Asceticism is the cure. Pleasure can be controlled by human beings, and it doesn't have to be the Augustinian super pessimistic scenario. Yeah, it's like a slightly cheerier version of Augustine, I would say. Like, there is a spin, and I do think you're right to point to his monastic um, training and his orientation as spiritual director and pastor as where some of that might be coming from. There seems to be more connection to a practical theology that acknowledges what really looks like people, you know, participating in some more active way in their own, in working out their own salvation in fear and trembling. So Augustine uses the word original sin 500 times in the work, in the works that we have of his. You can almost hear him muttering it to himself when he can't sleep instead of counting sheep. But for Gregory, the phrase is used only five times in his extant works. He rejects the idea that original sin passes via sex. He argues that sex could theoretically be free of lust. <laughs> Going back to St. Paul's greatest hits. Even sex in marriage that has no procreative intent, quote, though not recommended, is pardoned. End quote. And that is different from Augustine's super... Viewer discretion advised. I know. Like, <laughs> cover your ears, innocent ones. Anyway, uh, mortality is shared with Adam via humanity's shared nature, and not this weird, like, sex theory from sicko Augustine, who, like, cannot get his mind out of the gutter. Come on, Augustine. Yeah, yeah. Give me a break here with this shit. Right. Uh, so, but yeah, so speaking of the balance between Augustinian anthropology and monastic anthropology, which you just mentioned, when he's writing about divine grace and human freedom, Gregory discerns like a mystical participation on the part of humans in the divine, which accounts for good deeds that cannot be fully unpacked. So it's like this sort of magical combination of the human being's goodwill, good deeds. I would also guess like, the habituation of a way of life and God's grace. And the matrix is obscure. And I think probably by design, because like who wants to see how that sausage gets made, but I think it's, it's like not a bad solution. Yeah. You're like, it's a mystery. Building a mystery. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> yes. The nineties are back. Yes. Okay. They're back. Yeah, they really are. They have been, and man, they're, they're kicking us in the teeth. Um, but, I think it's not a bad solution to be like, yeah, you have to be good. 
God's going to do a lot of the work. And how that we're, we can't bring the accountant in here to sort of like parcel it all out. It's a mystery. But no one was hearing that in the Protestant nope. Reformation. Let me tell no. you. <laughs> they were not. Let's talk monsters, shall we? Mm. We were just talking about how Gregory isn't quite as big a psycho when it comes to sex as Augustine is. But this ain't body positivity we're talking about here. (laughs) At the end of the book of Job, God describes these massive monsters under divine control to put Job back in his place. And Gregory does a detailed allegorical analysis of each of these figures. For hundreds of pages. For hundreds of pages. pages. It, It gets a little weird. Um, it gets a lot weird. Let's start with Behemoth, who kind of strikes me as the Bible's answer to Babe the Blue Ox. There's one part of the text that reads, quote, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together and that his strength is in his loins, navel. Oh, it's so It's weird. like you're like an ACMR reader of like erotic content. I love it. It's great. <laughs> um, you're not supposed to speak about my... Side, side gig, gig. Yeah, on this podcast thanks Sorry. anyway yeah. gregory sees behemoth as a representation of the devil and so this all adds up to one thing the devil is strongest when he's tempting us with sex all right so i got the straight the straight shit on this so, so, so when he really goes wild when discussing the behemoth's stones okay this is gregory but because they're the stones of this beast and are bound by sinews wrapped together, they both display themselves as upright in order to escape notice and preach perverse things in order to corrupt, imitating doubtless their head, who, as a lion in ambush, both rages by the power of earthly dignity and flatters by a show of sanctity. Okay, can we we ring the alarm for mixed metaphor right now? Like, we have (laughs) a lion, we have a beast's stones with sinews, we have upright... Like preaching i it's there's so much going on in that sentence please continue. all is one all is one all all, all shall be well uh, but would that this beast were acting thus then only that he had not now also these testicles of lust to corrupt the inner parts of the faithful would that yes for not only <laughs> is that which is evil infused with the speaking of the mouth but that which is worse is held by more in the example of conduct for how many have not beheld Antichrist and yet are his testicles because they corrupt the hearts of the innocent by the examples of their doings. They seminate in that way. For whoever is exalted with pride, whoever is tortured by the longings of covetousness, whoever is relaxed with the pleasures of lust, whoever is kindled by the burnings of unjust and immoderate anger, what else is he but a testicle of the Antichrist, Travis? Another, another great <laughs> band name just waiting for someone. <laughs> Testicles just of Antichrist. Get, just putting just it out there. Just had to get that in there. Had to get that in there. So he's he, like, he, there's so much going on. He has to talk about these monsters because like, you read Job. Man, Job is beautiful. There is so much incredible poetry in Job. And then you get to the end. And it's like I'm ending with a sublime bang. Like I like I'm God and these monsters do whatever I say. Like, let's take a survey of my monsters, dude. Like, that's where we're at. And 
this is also like Gregory's like, oh, like we have these incredible, this incredible poetry and these great monsters. And now I'm going to discuss how this all relates to the Antichrist and the apocalypse. And I'm like, okay. And so we're like, we're not going to reproduce every detail of his investigations because it would be seriously tedious. But there are a few things to note. There are a few things to note. Yeah, I love how you draw our attention to the direction of the poetry at the end of the book of Job. It's pointing us toward this infinite, indescribable nature of the divine creator who knows the depths of the ocean and the heights of the heavens, who has created these impossible to imagine, crazy, visionary beasts. Who are you to like question what fate looks like or what how your life transpires you tiny little insect i mean do i love do i love the theology do i love the theology not every day but what i what i what i do like though i what i do like about job is before you even get to the monsters god is talking god and job will talk about like this pastoral imagery in this like incredible detail and we'll talk about like these animals and like the natural environment just like with this, such inspiration and so like even before you get to the giant like Godzilla versus King Kong finale of this book, there is just like this sense of wonderment that's injected into the natural landscape that I just, I find like really just moving. Um, mm. But yeah, right. Like, and then you get to like, like what do you got to say to me now, dude? And, and it's, it's a little harsh. But <laughs> it like, it don't ask me very... questions. I, I torture and kill whoever the fuck I want. Like right. I made these two monsters. <laughs> They have sinews that connect their testicles. So anyway, one thing that's surprising uh, about this section where he's talking about monsters is that Gregory does follow his namesake, Gregory of Nyssa, in reaching for the fishhook imagery to explain how Christ triumphs over the, de- over the devil as the baited hook. But he first applies it not to the sea monster, Leviathan, which might make more sense, uh, you know, a fish, fish hook. Just it would make a like, lot more sense, yeah. Thank you, thank you. But to the land-dwelling beast, Behemoth. And I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a large land beast using a fish hook, but I tried it as research for this pod. And Wouldn't recommend I, it. I just, it. It didn't go great. Um, the fish, fish hook got cut up in my Tra- Travis is a, is, a, is a Texas boy, so he would really go for the lasso, I think, instead of the, the fish hook in the nostril of a giant. I would rec- highly box, recommend yeah. a lasso. Um, I'm really glad that that came up in this podcast today (laughs) um okay so let's turn to one of the verses that's key to this part of um gregory's interpretation and here we're going to use the nrsv translation to this verse that's about the fish hook so can one take it with hooks or pierce its nose with a snare yeah, can you, so can you is, Klaus? Can you do it with you, a with hooks? Have you ever looked at Have you ever looked at the Vulgate version of this text? Because it's very strange. Because it's very different. So the original looks like this ironic kind of rhetorical question. It's like, are you going to be the one to stick a hook in this thing's nose? The implication is no, you're not. Right? You can't right. drag this thing around the hook, Earth Man. Uh, but Gregory has flipped it to make it line up with the incarnation as baited hook image from the atonement of Gregory of Nyssa. And this is what he writes. And this, beh- so, and this, is the, this is also the weird thing about Gregory, the end of this book, because both behemoth and Leviathan are the devil and the antichrist simultaneously. 
complicated. So for me, it felt like he couldn't wait to get to Leviathan and he just skips ahead with Behemoth and then he just goes with it. He's like, you know what? They're both the devil and I'm going to use the fish hook with both of them. So don't ask me stupid questions. Don't ask me stupid questions. Yeah. And so this is Gregory and this Behemoth knew indeed the incarnate son of God, but knew not the plan of our redemption for he knew that the son of God had been incarnate for our redemption but he was quite ignorant that this our redeemer was piercing him by his own death. Whence it is well said whence, in whence. his eyes, he will take him as with a hook for we are said to have in our eyes. that which we see a place before us. A good point. But the ancient enemy of mankind saw placed before him, the redeemer whom he confessed and knew knowing Feared and confessed and saying, what have we to do with thee, thou son of God? Hast thou come to torment us before the time? Matthew 8, 29. He was taken, therefore, with a hook in his eyes, because he both knew and seized it. And he first knew whom to fear, and afterwards feared him not. That was a mistake. When hungering in him for the death of the flesh, as if it were his proper bait. Discuss. Yeah. Discuss amongst yourselves, everyone. Yeah. yeah. This this man just needs to wait for Leviathan to talk about the fish hook. I just feel like he gets yeah. it all wrong here. It just doesn't really hold together for me. But I think it also reflects his interest in bringing the incarnation into this interpretation of how God solves the problem of evil when it comes to salvation. He's so excited. I think that's one. And it's also this like Gregory and Issa thing where where like the devil, mis- it's about misrecognition. The devil's yes. like, oh, this is an easy mark. And this Jesus guy is really powerful. And if I gobble him up, I'm going to get more powerful. And it's like, uh, that's a trap. <laughs> wah, wah. It yeah. feels like the end of a Scooby-Doo episode where, you know, you just like pull off the, the mask <laughs> of the villain. Like you've been caught in a really dumb trap by like shaggy who is clearly a pot and i would have his gotten dog. away with it too if it right. weren't for your incarnate son of god yeah <laughs> i'm envisioning like a really horrible christian nightmare version of scooby-doo now thank you for that so another part that stood out for me was this portion based on the lines i will not spare him nor his mighty words and framed for entreaty which again we got a big difference from the latin vulgate which in which it goes will it make many supplications to you will it speak soft words to you which is as you may have noticed a little different anyway gregory uses this to speculate about the antichrist he refuses to admit that the devil would seek forgiveness from god at the end of time that's like unthinkable for him As we've discussed before, there's this abiding theory of the fallen angels being locked into evil, maybe habituated into evil, depends on who you're reading, unable to turn away from their corrupted purpose. But they had free will, Klaus, at the beginning. They had free will, Uh, but they don't anymore. It's all their fault. But it's all their fault, even though now they can't choose anything but the evil. But the Antichrist, that's a different matter altogether. And this is completely speculative, but that's what makes it fun, right? (laughs) But Gregory can imagine this physical vehicle for Satan's purpose suddenly coming face to face with the reality of God's victory and trying to turn that Titanic around as it bears down on the iceberg. And Gregory's like, nah, not going to work. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not sorry, but you are screwed along with your master Satan. So sorry, Antichrist. You cannot like do a deathbed confession. And that's, Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I know. I just love, like, Gregory's, like, well, I wonder if Antichrist knows that he really fucked up at the end of time. <laughs> He's, like, like, clearly smoking his pipe at that point and just, like, <laughs> reflecting. Like, what if? It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Why does he go there? But I don't know. He brought us there. It was a great moment for me. Yeah, so the, one more example about where, like, Gregory just, like, takes these monsters and I think kind of ruins them. Like, you read the poetry of Job, as I've been saying, and, like, depictions of Leviathan and Behemoth are majestic and evocative, sublime, terrifying. Many adjectives apply. And Gregory has to peel it apart and make it, like, intensely didactic. So I'll take one example. This is this is a, a modern translation as opposed to what the Vulcate does. Who can open the doors of its face, Leviathan? There's terror all around its teeth. I'm really thinking big sandworm dune energy here. Like oh, big sandworm big dune energy, sandworm yeah, dune energy yeah, yeah. for sure. Its back is made of shields and rows, shut up closely, as with a seal. Here we're getting this incredible vision of the beast, and it's through these taunting rhetorical questions. And Gregory has to go through line by line and be like, the two stand for corrupt worldly powers and thrall to the Antichrist. The scales of its body are compared to shields. These shields are the proud defenses of sinners who seek to deflect blame from themselves. And, like, really just makes it very kind of, like, like I said, didn't mundane. It's, it's, de- it, everything's decoded. De- I kind of miss the mm-hmm. old, I miss the old, like, uh, the beginning of this when he was lecturing to these Latin speaking monks in Constantinople. Like, I really miss the, like, oh, like, I'm going to break it down historically and allegorically and morally. He just threw that ship right out the window. Like, it, it really it goes, it goes by the wayside. And so we have, like, a lot of this, like, the balls of Behemoth are like the Antichrist or whatever. You know, we get a lot of that. Um, and so you get, like, this, this, like, I don't know, the, this great gargantuan bodies of these monsters. And what, an interesting thing, though, about this part is that the monster still has the contract with God. Man, like, that was a deal you, you really regretted signing, my man. Like, that was, that was a big mistake. And so the contract applies. It's, it's valid through the end of time. God doesn't tear it up. It's like, okay, like, we've come to the end of the story, and I'm throwing you into the lake of fire. But guess what? A deal is a deal. So even as the Leviathan's monstrous body of billions of sinners burns in the lake of fire, a service, if you will, is being rendered onto God and the elect. The devil is still fulfilling some purpose assigned by the spiritual monarch of heaven. When the Leviathan and his huge body, the collection of reprobate sinners, are burning in hell at the end of time, this is also a service for the elect in heaven. Insofar as these good men, these men of good purpose and standing, get to rejoice in their position and compare their lot in life to that of the writhing, smoldering Masa Damnata. I feel like if we asked him what it smelled like, this, you know, burning stench of the rotting bodies... I think he would be like, it smells great up there. It's basically perfume. He's like, and he's so, like, it's, it's like a, a Yankee candle store in a Midwestern mall, baby. Like <laughs> apple cinnamon all the way. <laughs> so we can't really do right. justice to the scope of Gregory's allegorical readings. And that's partially his own damn fault. The devil in the Moralia is this incredibly complex figure, a tapestry of references, a stack of metaphysical and cosmic planes of existence, a booming hallelujah chorus of scriptural and traditional voices. While we might find humor in a lot of what's going on there, hashtag the balls of the monster, 
Gregory's dialogues are a place where scholars have gone to find out more about the medieval sense of humor, actually. You 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 may have heard of the, In the Belly of the Beast. Gregory's going to take you into the balls of the beast. <laughs> <laughs> a place you may have never wanted to go. But here we are. Gregory recounts this story in his dialogues, which has a nun forgetting to say her prayers over a piece of lettuce, because, like, always say grace, y'all. Always. So then yeah. she eats the lettuce... And, of course, the devil was hiding on the lettuce. And then she gets possessed by the devil because she ate him. And then, finally, the abbot comes and expels the devil. Thank goodness he was also, you know... A saint or some shit, right? An exorcist. That's the word I'm looking for. An exorcist. Yeah. The power of Christ compels you. Christ <laughs> Max von Sudow showed up. Max von Sudow logged on. <laughs> was, was her abbot, obviously. And expels the devil. Good job. The devil protests innocence. What did I do? What did I do? She ate me. But the abbot insists, and the devil leaves sulkily. The end. Right. I, so I mean, like, yeah. it's quite. It's quite funny, right? Is it funny, Klaus? Tell it me. It is funny. funny. I mean, I okay. think it's funny. I mean, compared to like the balls of the Antichrist, I mean, like, it's, it's still pretty funny. But like, yeah. right. Like, I think the point is, like, you go from the commentary on Job, morality on Job. And the devil is everywhere. The devil's all these monsters and such. And then you're like, the devil is hiding on a piece of lettuce. Like, yeah, this was this a joke. Hitherto, most scholars have taken this as superficial, humorous proof of the superstition of the dark ages, which the sixth century Rome in the year of our Lord seemed to have been bringing to the surface, the basest elements of classical culture. There's all kinds of things scholars have said about Gregory's dialogues. And it's interesting, his dialogues get read apart from the rest of his corpus. Like, everyone reads, like, the the pastoral handbook, apparently. I remember, like, we were reading Gregory the Great's uh, Morality and Job for a Christian ethics class at Divinity School. And everyone who had an MDiv was, like, groaning, like, oh, God, we have to read more Gregory the Great. Damn. Um, and, man, yeah, they did. It's a lot there to read. Um, but anyway, a smart young scholar, Charlotte Kingston, great name, I will say, uh, argues that Gregory's way for making sense of saints' lives, which what's happening a lot in these dialogues is Gregory's doing these dialogues about the lives of saints. Um, so that sort of hagiography aspect is important. And so narratives that are like that, he uses his principles for interpreting the Bible to also interpret and structure his retellings of saints' lives. So with that in mind, Charlotte Kingston goes to Gregory's reading of Genesis 3 to make sense of the crazy lettuce story. And so when you're like, oh, right, fruit being eaten has some serious consequences in this story. And so the bathos of the lettuce leaf misadventure shifts to something a bit more ominous in the context of the Garden of Eden. Right. Uh, yeah. What kind of fruit was on that tree, though, Klaus? Was it an apple or a pear? It was a pomegranate. Yeah, it was a pomegranate. Know. Thank you. Okay. The end. The devil, making excuses for himself, seems like a clownish figure at first glance. But Kingston points out that his excuse is just like what Adam and Eve proffer to God. Right? Also in Genesis 3, it's clear to commentators that God doesn't ask the serpent what he's done because his confession and contrition is not sought. So when the devil asks, what did I do wrong in the lettuce story? He's trying to answer a question no one is asking. Kind of yeah, sad, exactly. right? No one cares about it's the like, devil's It's like, redemption. dude, shut up. Like, just like, we don't want to hear from you. Yeah, like, come I on. Know. Yeah. So Kingston very helpfully summarizes Gregory's multi-stage theory of temptation. Suggestion, which comes from the enemy, the devil. 
the, the, the worm on the leaf of lettuce, pleasure through the flesh, consent through the spirit, and then boldness to defend through the vice of pride. And this, again, pride, corresponding to the scales of the Leviathan, which are shields from responsibility. Ah, uh, yes. And so the devil's whole who me shtick is at once a parody and a recapitulation of the fall. And his, his verbal trick, his verbal seduction stands in as a model for what sin is in the Bible. So the enemy suggests a pleasure and the abusive language continues as Adam and Eve and then the devil and the great lettuce caper try to lawyer their way out of accepting any damn responsibility for their actions. So it's no accident that Gregory is really focused on speaking correctly to counteract verbal seduction. Wow. Mark Jordan, are you there? Mark? <laughs> Mark, Mark, are you there? <laughs> Mark, did you, did you? Crap, you're inside my head. Um, it's a big part of his pastoral care rule. Gregory mistrusts speech to such a degree that he writes that the baby who can't speak, the infants, um, the one who cannot speak, oh, drop is, that. <laughs> uh, hey, Latin, and is unbaptized, goes to heaven. The one who can speak goes to hell. Damn. That is Stone Cold. Stone Cold babies Steve Austin. Hell. Stone yep. Cold Steve Austin <laughs> sending babies to hell. Body literally. slamming a baby straight to like, hell. <laughs> really? I mean, we do have like body slamming babies in the Psalms. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, but to finish up with Kingston's article, to see the devil as just humorous or innocuous, as most modern scholarship does, is to take the devil at his word when he's like, what did I do? And to totally miss the point of how Gregory would have approached these stories. The dialogues are segregated from the rest of his corpus because they're not serious, supposedly. But seriousness is not something that just slaps you across the face when it's there. Affects like this need to be reconstructed through the kind of contextualization that Kingston does. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Boom. Boom, yeah. So, yeah. So, like, this is... We're wrapping up here. You know, like, we're recording this December 22nd. 2021 is almost in the rearview mirror. We're... You know, and it's it's kind of cool to be able to end a season at the end of a calendar year. We almost did that last year, but not quite. You know, we we had our revelation thing, and then January sixth happened, and God knows what's going to happen this year. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Let's. Hmm. Hmm. What could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> but I, I I will say that I am very pleased that you know this worked out to we it worked out that we are ending the season with the year i am very much looking forward to getting medieval with you klaus yeah. for season yeah. 3 we have lots of fun people in store uh, we've already mentioned that we're going to read some women who wrote things down very yeah. big news very big news yeah. Yeah. we'll be thinking about what happened in with the we've talked a little bit today about the rise of you know, the monk Pope will definitely be reading some authors who are part of monastic movements or other vowed religious movements and their take on the devil. So there's just a lot in store. I'm super excited. Yeah, me too. And we're so grateful for everyone listening and new listeners, old loyal listeners. Everyone's a great listener. And yeah, rate, review, do all the things that all like the podcasting YouTube shills demand of you, like, exactly. like demonic priests demanding mm -hmm. sacrifices, like do all those yes. things for us, like an overdrive. Yes. And mm -hmm. we will uh, miss, we will wish you a happy holidays and a Merry Christmas and, and everything good in the new year. So thanks for listening. See you next time.
This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.